CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Glad to have all of you with us for Political Rewind uh, today. Um, you know, as we get the show started, I, if, if you were uh, listening yesterday morning, uh, you heard that at the very beginning of our segment previewing the Iowa caucuses, I thought it would be fun to play a song from The Music Man, Meredith Wilson's great American musical. Uh, that one was about Professor uh, Hill interacting with Iowans who were stubborn and difficult to deal with. When I woke up at 2.30 this morning to try to figure out what was going on in Iowa, I thought of another song from Music Man. It's a song called Trouble. <laughs> we got trouble right here in River City, which in fact was Mason City, which was one of the cities which has a number of precincts that didn't get everything counted uh, in time for us to have results uh, yeah, last night. We're going to talk a lot about that, not only just what it means in terms of the Democratic presidential race, but the repercussions in terms of what it might mean in terms of our reliance on caucuses opposed to primaries. Is there Are there voter security issues we ought to be looking at? All of that part of the first section of the show today. Uh, on Facebook, one of our frequent uh, listeners, viewers on Facebook Live, Richard Bodor, saw the lineup for today's show, and he said, wow, a whole panel of political scientists. And I said, yeah, we've got a great group, which is made up of Dr. Andra Gillespie, who, of course, is professor of political science at Emory University. Um, glad to have you here today. Thank you. It's been a while. We haven't seen you for a couple of weeks, so I'm glad you're back. Thank you. Right across from uh, Andra is uh, Dr. Amy Steigerwald. She's a political science professor at Georgia State University and, among other things, has a specialty in uh, studying women and, and elections. I should have pointed out that Andra Gillespie, uh, too, uh, has a specialty. She's just written her book, her most recent book on Barack Obama and the impact of Obama in the African-American community or the lack of impact that he had uh, as the country's first African-American president. So, And we're welcoming for the first time to our uh, studio, Dr. Carl Cavalli, who is a political science professor at the University of North Georgia. Um, and you study presidential politics and political parties. Is that is that a fair Representation? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you got a book you want to plug? <laughs> uh, I, I, have, I have a couple. I have a textbook. I have one on presidential legislative behavior that I wrote several years ago. Presidential legislative, legislative behavior, behavior, meaning what? Um, how presidents interact to try and get their, their proposals passed. Oh, okay. I, as interact a, with Congress and, yeah, and others. That's what I figured, yeah. but I'm glad you explained it. Gee, we should talk at some point about how that doesn't happen under the current yeah, president yeah. and Congress. Um, so we have all these uh, ec experts with us to talk uh, today. And then there's me and Greg Bluestein. <laughs> Greg, you are driving. You're making the long, like, two-and-a-half-hour drive. You're heading west on I-80 uh, from the Davenport area, right along the Mississippi River, heading all the way back uh, to Des Moines. I, I told you before the show went on the air in five uh, uh, Iowa caucuses, I don't think I ever drove two and a half hours to get to Davenport. It just shows you how much more dedicated you are than I was. How'd it go? Why I passed the world's largest truck stop. <laughs> last night to see uh, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms of Atlanta uh, caucus for or, or stump for, uh, President, uh, for Joe Biden um, in, in this little uh, elementary school in Davenport. It was really interesting seeing it firsthand. How many people uh, basically were caucusing in that elementary school last night? There was about 300 people, and you needed 44 votes, uh, caucusers, um, to, be, to get 15% to be viable. And Joe Biden fell about 10 short of that. But it mm. wasn't for lack of trying. It was really interesting seeing all the cajoling, the pleading, the urging, the yelling, the screaming. <laughs> it got pretty intense in there to try to get you know, Amy Klobuchar supporters to switch over and back Joe Biden and Tom Steyer supporters, you know, these candidates who had very, very little support to go back Joe Biden. In the end, he didn't get it. So uh, you probably know more than the uh, Democratic Party in Des Moines does about how that caucus did turn out. Biden didn't, uh, uh, isn't, vi wasn't viable in, in that precinct. Who, who was? Um, Bernie Sanders was. 
Pete Buttigieg was and Elizabeth Warren was. And I, I tweeted out the results and, and a couple of national reporters um, retweeted it just because of that very fact. They're, they're, because there are no results out that even scattered reports from kind of the hinterlands were, were big news. Um, you said that uh, at, at that precinct, though, when they were either whatever they did, calling in or using the app to uh, report back, you didn't see any visible signs, at least, that the precinct captain in that particular school was having any difficulty getting results back. But that doesn't mean he wasn't. Yeah, there was no like overt drama. But remember, we kind of wrapped up um, – we knew there was something up because there's no results coming in, but you know, we kind of wrapped up fairly early, so it wasn't that too much of a surprise that no votes were coming in. It was around 9 p.m. or so, um, our time, central time, when, when, when things wrapped up. It wasn't for the next couple hours we realized something major is happening, some disaster, disorder, disarray. Those are all understatements for what happened last night. Yeah, all right. Stay with us, Greg, because after all, you are driving a long drive, so we're glad you can be with us for, for at least a little while. All right, so let's let's uh, talk about this. Uh, Andre, let me start with you and then get everybody in the mix. Uh, we the, what, what appears to have happened here is just a massive screw-up by the Iowa Democratic Party. After a year of Democratic candidates campaigning, spending tens of thousands, millions of dollars trying to reach Iowans. Uh, the system that the Iowa Democratic Party set up for reporting uh, vote tallies back to uh, their headquarters completely failed. The app that they created wasn't working in many cases. They couldn't, as a backup, call in and get their results heard. Just how big a disaster is this, uh, or are we in some ways overplaying it this morning? Um, well, in the short term, it's a disaster because people want their election results when they want them. I mean, you know, we live here in Metro Atlanta and we get annoyed with Fulton County like, you know, every election because <laughs> they wait till midnight to really kind of report their results in. So we know the frustration. People want results. They want them quickly and they want them transparently. Um, I see a couple of problems with this. One, I would say for our own debates about voter machines, the idea that there's a paper backup is important. Right. And, and like this is why you need a paper backup, because stuff like this could happen. But um, the other thing is the idea of, you know, they were changing how they were going to report voting this time around. So they weren't doing it the traditional way. You get to see the first ballot. You get to see the secondary ballot. You get to see the delegate allocation, which is not what folks are used to seeing. Normally, we just see the delegates awarded in each precinct. Right. And so the fact that you were changing that. And now you're changing the reporting system. Like, this is why you don't do too much at once, because if something screws up, then it all looks a mess. Um, and so I think that people should take that kind of precaution and understand that, you know, what they're doing when they're planning stuff like this. They're also, you know, this could be an allegory for like you know, when you try to change too much from a policy standpoint at the same time, something's bound to go wrong. And, you know, and you can't usually pinpoint or identify exactly what the issue is. But and, you know, I said this differently on 11 Alive last night before I thought that this was going to turn out the way that it did or before I knew that this was going to turn out the way that it did. People are always asking why Iowa, why did, why do Iowa and New Hampshire get to go first because of the sort of small, non-descriptively representative state issue. It's really hard to make that argument now that yeah. this screwed up, screw up has happened. Yeah. So, you know, not just because of them going first, but also because of this, uh, because of their voting process, because it's a caucus and not a primary. So Andra said a lot that exactly what I want to unpack as we go forward today. Uh, but let's let's for the time being. Uh, before we get to some of the details of what she uh, mentioned, L let's talk about what impact, if any, this now has in national politics, Amy, moving forward with the democratic uh, uh, process. Um, we lost essentially no candidates last night. Mm -hmm. We didn't winnow the field in any way. We don't have a clear-cut winner. Nobody's going into New Hampshire with any actual provable momentum before we talk about that aspect of it and i'll bring you into it too carl here's an interesting montage of how uh, the candidates were responding last night to how they were talking to their their supporters uh, gathered in mostly in des moines about uh, uh the results not being there and how they were spinning it let's listen but we know by the time it's all said and done, Iowa, you have sh so we don't know all the results. 
But we know by the time it's all said and done, Iowa, you have shocked the nation. You probably heard we don't know the results. <laughs> we know there's delays, but we know one thing. We are punching above our weight. I imagine, have a strong feeling that at some point, the results will be announced. And when those results are announced, I have a good feeling we're going to be doing very, very well here in Iowa. Thank you so much. So listen, it is too close to call, so I'm just going to tell you what I do know. You won! <laughs> we're going to walk out of here with uh, our share of delegates. We don't know exactly what it is yet, but we feel good about where we are. And look, so, so it's on to New Hampshire. South Carolina and well beyond. We're in this for the long haul. So we heard Pete Buttigieg. By the way, let me tell you, Buttigieg, uh, Klobuchar, uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, Biden, I mean, uh, Warren, and then Biden. Um, First of all, Amy, Pete Buttigieg was the only one to just plain claim outright victory based on no data whatsoever. He became the sort of Bill Clinton of 92 Mm -hmm. when Clinton, uh, before the results were all in in New Hampshire, declared himself the The comeback comeback kid. (laughs) Right. And so I think there is sort of a difference also in like how everyone was responding to it. Right. What tack they're taking on this. I mean, what's happening is, is there are, in fact, 49 more primary slash caucuses to come, right? There's a lot that's happening here that's a lot in that. And I think sort of to pick up on a point that Andre was making earlier, part of this is that we have this feeling that we should know immediately what's going on. And that's really, number one, it didn't used to work that way. Number two, as we all sort of tell people around us constantly, right, it's better to do it right than to do it fast. And I think in the Iowa caucus in particular, the thing that people don't realize, so leaving aside issues with the caucus itself and sort of whether or not we should be doing that, it's all volunteers, even more so than you normally have. It is people who, you know, are being trained up the night before of how it is they're going to do this. They're devoting their time and their energy and it's midnight and they're stuck on phones or trying to enter into an app and do, uh, which I was given permission to say, crazy ass calculations to try to figure out <laughs> the delegate counts and then figure out, do I round it this way? Do I round it this way? People are leaving. People are going. And so, I mean, it's actually a terribly confusing system. So, uh- uh, uh, Carl uh, and Andra both make that point. Uh, we're impatient. And certainly those of us in the media, all of us who watched last night, one cable network or another, all of the focus, all their reporters striding purposefully around caucus uh, precinct uh, gyms or whatever, uh, saying, here it is, this is what we're going to get. I mean, you've got to say that it's a combination of the campaigns needing results as they move forward to uh, the next state and keep their fundraising going. And then there is a media component of this that plays into it. Media abhors a vacuum, uh, including social media, too. And in the, in the absence of this, it, it allows the candidates to say whatever they want. We don't have results so that they can all claim uh, that they did well, that they did fine. Um, but it also on, for example, social media... Uh, it also that vacuum is filled with things like conspiracy theories. Yeah. I've heard about this secret app that was somehow being used to, uh, you know, the word now is rig the primary. Uh, so, and, and again, in the absence of results, it allows people to say whatever they want to say. Hey, Greg, what what is it? I, I guess that you were not you're, the people at your precinct, as you pointed out, really weren't aware of how this was going to go south very quickly uh, by the time you uh, were ready to file and, and leave the precinct. But um, what's uh, what are you hearing on the ground up there? I mean, how are people responding to what's going on? It's really fascinating to watch local media because they're despondent. Yeah. They, they know that this might be the last First in the Nation caucus in Iowa ever. I mean, and it's, it's, it was remarkable how quickly um, that seemed to settle in. I mean, there, there's, there's, it's almost mourning um, from local newscasters uh, that this could be it for them. Um, I'll say the candidates largely know the score. Uh, the, the amount of organization it requires to run a kind of ground game like this is, is, is intense and immeasurable. 
and they've got precinct captains in every one of these places that are texting in the results. So when you hear Joe Biden kind of play, you know, downplay the results and hear Pete Buttigieg um, d- declare himself victorious, um, I'm not saying he is the winner, but he probably has a reason to be very buoyant about it. Um, but the winner might be the biggest loser because this is a huge fundraising night. It's a huge momentum night. It's a huge news night. And, and whoever won last night is deprived of all that. They all got to declare some sort of victory. They all got to share in some sort of laurels, um, victory laurels last night because there was no outcome. There was no, there was no result. Um, so that's what makes this so, um, so, so frustrating, I'm sure, to the, to, to the candidates. Carl, um, we just have a brand new statement from the state party, Democratic Party chair, about the returns, uh, Troy Price. Uh, He was criticized severely last night because the only statement he made was at one point after midnight doing a 74-second statement over the phone to reporters who were listening, didn't take questions, hung up this morning. He says this. Because of the required paper documentation, to Andres' point, we have been able to verify that the data recorded in the app and used to calculate state delegate equivalents is valid and accurate. Precinct-level results are still being reported to the Iowa Democratic Party. While our plan is to release results as soon as possible today, and to your point, Amy, he goes on, our ultimate goal is to ensure that the integrity and accuracy of the process continues to be upheld. I, what I hear in that is don't look for these anytime soon today, Carl. <laughs> yeah, I think they're trying to satisfy impatient people, and I don't think it's going to make them any less impatient. As, as everybody here has said today, we've we in 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 recent times we have to have things yesterday we have to have results instantly uh whether or not that you know like you say take time and get it right it sounds good but people don't want that when you really ask them and this isn't going to satisfy anybody i don't think well i mean i think the other issue here is that okay so if you know you kind of have all the raw data where's your accounting firm that'll come in and actually do this efficiently accurately and quickly, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Because I'm, I'm just looking at Iowa. It's like, yeah, I get it. You got 1,600 precincts, but it's not that big of a state. So, like, you know, can, can we add up 16, like, you know, figures, like, you know, quickly and efficiently? Yeah. But I also think the other point, and this is somewhat concerning of some of the campaigns who are suggesting that, you know, that there could be something that's rigged or that there's other issues. There is, in fact, a paper trail in every single one yeah, of these. As, as the now, they're messy. They're handwritten. They perhaps have some interesting calculations, but it can all be gone through. And that in and of itself is important. And it's it's terribly important. As to your point, uh, 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 Greg, uh, we have just reported, been reporting a story over the last week about the fact that our secretary of state, Brad Raffensperger, is mm. submitting a proposal for recounts in close elections that will not, in fact, have a hand manual recount. They're just going to run the same uh, ballots uh, with the codes through the scanner again. And, you, you know, the one thing that Iowa may have going in its favor, Greg, is at least they have the paperwork to go back and look at it. That is exactly the chatter here is that thank goodness they at least have some sort of backup because the, the other more more high-tech uh, methods both fail. That's the app, and not that phones are too high-tech, but still, <laughs> the phone system that they had failed, too, because uh, people who were calling in got busy signals for hours at a time. So there is a lot of uh, relief that at least there is that paper system. It might take Lord knows how long to go through it, but there is a there is a trail. All right, so let's talk winners and losers based on what we know. We're going to know actual winners and losers later today, maybe. But, but here, Andre, let's start with this. Bernie Sanders, by all accounts, by whatever polling there was down toward the end, and we shouldn't forget the fact the other disaster in the cycle was the most reputable poll of the last days of the caucus collapse because the methodology was incorrect. But we have an Emerson College poll. We have many other polls, CNN, all suggested that Sanders was on a roll. So to a certain extent, not being able to declare a significant victory last night and a roar into New Hampshire, he's a little bit hamstrung by what happened last night, or am I wrong? Well, I don't know, because even though it looked like he was going to win the primary, I mean, I think we need to qualify win, Okay. Um, because he's winning with a plurality. He's not even winning with a near majority. Um, just the field is so diffuse 
that we knew that three to five of the candidates were going to come in and actually probably leave with delegates. Um, I think uh, Sanders had a uh, had a good night, though I think uh, Pete Buttigieg is being hubristic and arrogant and kind of declaring victory. I think he's telling me that he did better than the poll suggested that he did. At least that's what yeah. he thinks he's doing. And just by... Not that I can take this as scientific at all, but just by what I was watching last night in terms of the sort of on the scene reporting, you know, I'm not quite sure Joe Biden had the greatest night in the Boy, world. Yeah. And so, you know, so I am going to be very curious to see what the what, what these final counts look like. And that seems to have buoyed Buttigieg and also Amy Klobuchar, who's also claiming that she punched above her weight. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, we knew that multiple people were going to come out of this race and it wasn't going to settle anything. Um, you know, I think it, it is for everybody below five. So from Andrew Yang on down, it's like, do you stay in the race? I mean, certain people like, you know, Deval Patrick, uh, Michael Bennett, it was like, you know, it's kind of time to wrap this up. So this is why I love having a panel of smarter people than I am, because as Andrew was saying that, Carl, I realized uh, Bernie Sanders fundraising isn't going to suffer <laughs> despite not having a result from last night. So he will still essentially roar into New Hampshire. But it does give an opening to an Amy Klobuchar uh, who, as we just said, she and we heard her say, I punched above my weight. I'm still with it. If she had had a very poor finish, if Pete Buttigieg had had a very poor uh, finish, um, you, you know, they would have had to be weighing, I think, today um, – just how much longer they wanted to stay in the race. So maybe it's the marginal candidates who really kind of uh, got the most out of the non-result so far. I think the interesting thing is that eventually we will know the results and uh, we'll get that that information somewhere down the road. And candidates will have to make a decision – um, they may not have done as well as, as they had hoped to do, um, but they don't know it now. Yeah. You know, they, they'll, they'll know it later on. Um, these, it's, it's not clear that the results that we, the, 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 the sort of messed up system we have right now, it's not clear that we would have gotten much different had everything gone perfectly. Well, there are going to be three or four candidates mm-hmm. coming out of this anyway. Okay. Okay. You agree? Amy? I do. I mean, going in, we sort we knew that the, the three that had been polling sort of ahead of everybody in this race were Sanders, Warren, and Buttigieg. And so it was a question of where they were going to go. Biden needed to show that he could be viable in more places than people expected, but he was never polling terrifically high. It's not a good state for him, yeah. right? It doesn't sort of play to his strengths. Klobuchar, on the other hand, right? wanted to try to show that she could be viable in more places than people thought so that she could stay in. Um, But the other thing that's difficult about this is, number one, I think we're probably going to know by the end of today, at which point you got plenty of time before New Hampshire. But the other side of it is that this is also a state which, comparatively to a lot of the other major, uh, especially Democratic hubs, is disproportionately white, uh, disproportionately Right, a number of things. And when it comes to the number of delegates that will actually be sent, so it's quite tiny. small. It's, it's tiny. 49. Yeah, to give you tiny. some idea of context, California is going to send 495. Yeah. And so we put a lot of weight on these first two contests, which in the actual scheme of things don't matter a lot, but we kind of push it up because of the kind of historic trends. Right. We got to get to a break. But but before we do, Greg, what I'm hearing from uh, the, the panel here are blue ribbons panel of political experts is uh, maybe the biggest loser is the caucus in Iowa. I mean, this could be, wait, Amy points out, we all have talked about it for really months, uh, that the Iowa caucuses are not representative, even vaguely of the Democratic uh, voting universe. And and, uh, although the conversation had begun, it is conceivable that we could have seen our last Iowa caucus. It's just not a modern-day viable way to collect votes. I think a lot of people are saying, you get to make you make a comment on it, we're going to take a break, and then I want to hear what the rest of the panel says about the same thing. Yeah, I, I agree with you. There's a lot of reporters down here who think it's a foregone conclusion, a lot, of, a lot of Des Moines analysts who think it's a foregone conclusion, this could be the last. And there's a real opening for South Carolina and other, other states to make that you know, pitch to, be, to jump ahead of the line now. All right, let's do this. Uh, Greg, can you stay with us for a couple more minutes? 
You got it. All right, terrific. Let's take a break. When we come back, let's talk. Is the caucus system in Iowa dead or more important is what's really possible? Will Democrats decide to put another state first by 2024? We'll do all that when we come back on Political Rewind. A conflict with Iran. We caught a total monster and we took him out. A new Mideast peace plan. Today, Israel has taken a giant step toward peace. A contentious impeachment trial. They're impeaching me. You know why? Because they want to win an election. President Trump will have a lot to cover when he addresses a joint session of Congress. I'm Audie Cornish. Join us for live special coverage of the 2020 State of the Union from NPR News. Join us starting tonight at 9 here on GPB and gpbnews.org. Support for GPB comes from you, our listeners. And the Savannah College of Art and Design with a public celebration of Savannah Women of Vision, whose ideas, leadership, and service help sculpt the city of Savannah. Friday, February 14th, 4 p.m. at Arnold Hall, scad.edu. And the Georgia Council on Developmental Disabilities announcing Inclusive Post-Secondary Education Day on February 6th, where Georgians will educate legislators about how higher education leads to increased opportunities. Info at gcdd.org. Um, so the question now becomes, we have two questions. Uh, as a result of uh, what many people thought was a debacle, although when I listened to our panel, they're suggesting, yeah, it wasn't good, but we're going to know the results before long, and maybe we're overplaying, or maybe all of us in the media are over-dramatizing exactly what happened there. Gee, when have we ever done that before in the media? <laughs> uh, um, uh, but here's something interesting. Uh, the real question, I think, Amy, is... Maybe not that Iowa's suddenly going to not have a caucus anymore, but have we finally reached the moment when Democrats particularly are going to say, we've got to change the order? What's interesting is Governor Kemp was on Scott Slade's uh, show on AM750 this morning, and first of all, he made a crack. He made a joke. He said, oh, I think today Stacey Abrams is going to be declared the winner of the Iowa caucus. Uh, ha, ha, ha. Uh, but then he went on and made a, a, a comment. Slade asked him if Georgia uh, would want the honor, Scott called it, of going first in 2024. Kemp said this, quote, I think we can definitely handle it. I always felt like Georgia ought to have more influence just because we're a big state, very diverse. It has something for everyone. And then he said this, the problem with the caucuses is I know it's an age-old tradition and people are very passionate about it, but it's also flawed, as you can see right now. You, nobody knows what happened last night. Uh, and he goes on uh, from there. Um, so, uh, in fact, the question is, do you think Democrats really are learning a lesson from this and say, you know, Julian Castro pointed mm-hmm. it out. Um, we, we, we've heard it from other, you know, we don't have African-Americans represented in the mm-hmm. field anymore. It, it, is this the death knell for Iowa being first, possibly? I think it possibly is. I mean, Julian Castro from the beginning suggested that part of the problem is that it's, again, not a terribly representative state. Um, And the caucus system itself really sort of invites problems because the caucus system presumes you have a lot of time, you have a lot of resources, you don't work the swing shift, you don't need child care, you have hours to spend with your closest friends in a high school gymnasium. Uh, It also presumes that you're okay with being public about your vote. It's one of the only things normally we have a secret ballot. And this is one which is terribly public. And so a lot of people also don't want to do that. Right. It brings out the most impassioned, but it doesn't necessarily bring out everyone who wants to have a say and be involved, especially if they're concerned about how they're going to be viewed in their communities. Georgia is more representative, honestly, of the country, right? Not only of the Democratic Party, but really of the country, right? It's much more diverse. It's got more of, um, you know, more diversity on lots of issues, right? Including, you know, what the topographically and geographically and all of these other types of things. And so there's a lot of reasons why it is disconcerting that two states which are not really representative not only of the party but of the country get such disproportionate impact, especially given that they bring so few delegates to the whole mix. So it's not only that they get to go first and are just like not uh, matched up demographically, but also they really contribute almost nobody in the end final count. 
so I'm going to defend the other side, sure. even though I, I I see Amy's points. But I'm just going to throw this out here, um, kind of to be devil's advocate. Um, one, I mean, part of the reason why uh, the tradition has sort of kept with the small states is that if we go to larger states, that means that the entry costs have just gone up for lesser well-known candidates. Um, and so if you can prove your mettle in Iowa and New Hampshire, then that might actually give you the momentum and, the, and attract to be able to attract the resources to be able to go on. And, and, and it's going to be hard to find a small state that actually is demographically kind of representative of the United States. You know, I was just looking at this map um, of sort of like, you know, the Electoral College uh, states, you know, one can make a case that Rhode Island might actually, as in terms of small states, might actually be more demographically kind of representative of the United States. It's got a higher Latino population. It's got more African-Americans. Um, but uh, given its proximity to New Hampshire, if New Hampshire stays sort of, you know, sort of second in the mix, then why would we do two in New England? Like, that doesn't make sense. And a state like Georgia is just too big. Just the yeah. number of media markets you would have to compete in in this state would make it expensive. And yeah, that might yeah. actually be too cost prohibitive. So, the other sense. thing is, is, is that, and while I agree, and nobody has talked about the notion of adding like ranked choice voting, because that would sort of be a way to kind of mm -hmm. almost have a bit of the caucus process, but without the deliberation. Is that there is this great deliberative mm -hmm. sort of sort of experiment that's going on here that is actually more akin to town halls where you kind of try to persuade your your neighbors to vote for things. I totally see your point, though, about people who are oh, doing no. shift work. And it's a totally cool system. I mean, honestly, it is. It's fascinating to watch people get but, to yeah. like persuade their neighbors and talk this through. You know, the thing is that they also need to come up with a way, though, to either have people be able to call in and do it via Skype or something, because there's a lot of people that simply can't make it. So let me, you know, Carl, what's interesting is I, as I I hear the conversation and think about, well, would Democrats prefer to have another state go first after what happened here? Uh, <laughs> I suddenly thought, is this going to be kind of like the way in which the two parties pick their convention cities? You know, they do it in terms of where they think they might have the most influence and that sort of thing. I mean, it's interesting to think about if they were to decide that Iowa is not the place to go, the kind of sweepstakes <laughs> that would happen to figure out as Andre's pointing out, where would you go next? Well, I, I, I might kind of play devil's advocate to everybody here and, and to suggest, first of all, a lot of the, the, the criticisms of caucuses are things that we've known about for a long time, and uh, that doesn't change with this. I think Iowa adds to the conversation. I think the biggest thing, we'll probably move on. New Hampshire's going to happen, and the Super Tuesday is going to happen, and this will fade into the background. But I think one of the biggest things that might happen is maybe three or four years from now, especially if the Democrats lose, then you're going to see, was this? Then we're going to revisit this. Yeah. Was this decisive? Was it causal? The other thing is that um, I, I think the fact that they are small states makes them attractive rather than rather than uh, problematic. And Rhode Island is actually a good choice. I hadn't thought of that. Uh, Rhode Island is actually a good choice. But um, I don't think that in today's system that's heavily front-loaded that candidates can really build momentum anymore. You've got to go raise the money and get the endorsements in the organization, et cetera, et cetera. That's what they've been doing for the past year. And so whether you compete in Iowa and New Hampshire or not, uh, you've still got to have those resources for the long haul yeah. already. Yeah. Greg, uh, the Republican Party, uh, the RNC, and President Trump are having a field day already with this, talking about uh, the Democrats being disorganized, uh, talking about a rigged system, all the things we're going to hear about uh, in the hours to come today. Um, you know, and there are commentators out there, analysts who say, oh, this is a bad way for the Democrats to start. It 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 lends itself to this concern that they don't know how to govern. I Tell me what you think. I find it, this is a one-day phenomenon. I really can't imagine this carries on as a real issue as we move forward. But maybe I'm wrong, Greg. Look, I, I'm with you. I, I think there'll be hand-wringing here in Iowa for the yeah. next few months. But, but once, you know, when, we, when we're talking about the March 24th, primary in Georgia, we won't be looking back two months ago to this disaster in Iowa. Um, I do think it will certainly spark that debate about moving the first, the first in the nation caucus. Maybe, and one of the things I've heard the most about is the rotation. You know, maybe you rotate from South Carolina to Iowa to New Hampshire to Nevada. 
the four states that already have these early voting contests um, to be a little bit more representative of different populations and different different demographics. Um, and that might come out of this. But certainly I think this, this is a maybe not a one-day story, but a couple-day story that will not be lingering uh, way down in March. All right. Before we let you go, uh, one last question that I'll start with you on, and then I know you want to. You probably want to stop and get breakfast somewhere on I eighty. There are so many wonderful choices. Uh, <laughs> let me ask you, Greg. Um, does you know we've said a number of times on the show that it you know uh, Secretary of State Raffensperger's choice to put the Georgia primary as late as March twenty fourth. We all at first thought, well, we're going to be out of the action. Increasingly, it's looking like it may not have been a bad choice at all. I do wonder if the field isn't winnowed in Iowa, and if everybody gets to move forward to New Hampshire, does this make us even slightly more relevant on March twenty fourth? I think so. I think word slightly is is, yeah. is, is opportune, <laughs> right? Because we don't know what's going to happen in um, Super Tuesday yet either. And Super right. Tuesday, we'll, yeah. we'll do a, a huge which is March third, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, yep. All right. Well, Greg Blustein, thank you. I know you've had a long night. It's great that you were able to uh, talk to us for a while, and I know you're going to jump on a plane and come back here so you can be on uh, Political Rewind tomorrow at nine a.m. <laughs> Thanks, Greg. Uh, what do you think about this, Andre? Do we slightly do we gain slightly more uh, relevance because the field wasn't winnowed already a little bit? Well, I mean, as much as I've talked about certain people needing to quit um, today, um, and or maybe after these results come in, we were still probably going to leave this race with five candidates, yeah. regardless of that's what right. was going to happen, okay. and yeah. that's not even counting Michael Bloomberg. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I didn't expect that the field was going to winnow such that Bloomberg wasn't going to have a shot on this gamble that I still think is a gamble on Super Tuesday. So I think that the race is still going to be pretty fluid, uh, you know, even well into March. So I, I think that there was always going to be a shot that we were going to not be just kind of picking sort of a. Carl, you're nodding as Andre says all of that. Yeah, well, um, uh, Bloomberg is a big wild card. He's a big test case. Um he could turn out to be the uh, Jeb Bush of, of, of 2020. Um, on the other hand, he seems to be, at least within the Democratic system, uh, primary system, he seems to be doing all the right things or playing, to, playing all the right cards to attract Democrats using his wealth, um, which doesn't equate to support. That's the, that's the big thing about um, that's where Jeb Bush failed. He had all these super PACs working for him, raising tons of money and spending money. But that doesn't translate into individual support. Right, right. And um, Bloomberg is doing the same thing, but he's probably doing it about as well as you can, raising the gun control issues, saturating the airwaves um, with these issues that will appeal to Democrats across the board, I think. Yeah, and Amy, last word before the break. Uh, he will certainly make Georgia continually to be, continue to be a state that matters uh, moving forward. Definitely. I mean, because the other part I think that we forget is that he's that Bloomberg in particular is not only spending money for his own campaign, but he still is also continuing to spend money uh, supporting candidates like Lucy McBath um, in the 6th District um, and other places around the country, particularly who are involved with uh, gun uh, control legislation. Um, he also right was running uh, impeachment ads, as was Steyer a little bit. And so what's going to be, I think, more interesting is what do the candidates do once they do decide that it's time to go out. So Andrew Yang, from all accounts, did not have a particularly uh, positive night. He's not polling very high anywhere. But you also see that if you look at uh, polls of Yang supporters of whether or not they'll support uh, another uh, person in the Democratic primary, for if they get the nomination, the answer is no. Right. In fact, a shockingly high number of them are like, no, not even yeah. a, it depends, a no. And so the real question is going to be how, for example, does Andrew Yang handle that? Does he make a big yeah. pitch to convince his uh, voters that they should go over? Same thing with Steyer, right? Same thing with Bloomberg. Right. Do they try to run a third party campaign or do they say, no, Ugh. we need to coalesce behind whoever the eventual nominee the, the, is? The words third party campaign send chills up my spine. Right. Yeah. But I don't think Bloomberg is going to do that. I don't that, think that's so. his uh, yeah. style. All right. Look, let's get our uh, final break of the show out of the way and we'll be back with more on Political Rewind. <laughs> The president extends the travel ban and hits Nigeria the hardest. 
Democrats say it impacts hundreds of millions of people. The Department of Homeland Security says that's a gross exaggeration. I'm Todd Zwillick. What's driving immigration policy? Facts or fear? That's next time on 1A. Join us for 1A this morning at 10 right here on GPB. You can listen live online at gpbnews.org. Support for GPB programs comes from our listeners. And the Georgia Historical Society, sponsors of Super Museum Sunday, February 9th, when more than 130 sites statewide open free to the public for this Georgia Day tradition. Details available online at georgiahistoryfestival.org. GPB brings you in-depth stories from across the state. Go to gpbnews.org and check out our series on Wild Georgia. Look at our coverage of the opioid epidemic and guns in Georgia. You'll find it all under GPB News Presents. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. By the way, uh, you know, today's the first day of our two shows a day schedule. Uh, We're here at 9 a.m. this morning live, and uh, we're going to be live again at 2 p.m. because we have no idea what we're going to hear from Iowa between now and then. As I think most of you know, what we've been saying about our two shows a day is you have two opportunities now to uh, listen to Political Rewind, 9 o'clock and 2 o'clock. We we do repeat the 9 o'clock show at 2 But I know you're very different audiences, so we want to give you a chance to hear it when you can. But today at 2, we're going to be live um, and figure out how the heck to put a panel together in the next couple of hours. But we'll (laughs) we'll make it work. Um, Dr. Carl Cavalli from University of North Georgia joins us. Your first appearance on the show. Thanks for being here. Amy Steigerwald, Andre Gillespie, veterans of Political Rewind, back in the studio with us as well. All right. Let's just take a minute to talk about the state of uh, the union address. Carl, I'm going to start with you. Uh, Amy and I both read the same piece in the New York Times uh, written by Katie Rogers. It's a piece on presidential speechwriters. It's a piece about uh, who's writing the Trump speech. And, you know, we try to remain as neutral as possible. Uh, I do in the way I talk about various uh, people in politics today. But this quote just really jumped out at me as worthy of just a mention. Uh, Hogan Gidley, one of the president's uh, White House spokespeople, uh, was asked about who's going to write the speech. And he said, quote, the president is a best-selling author and deeply gifted orator who packs arenas and has a meticulous and carefully honed method for writing his speeches, whether it be at a rally, a manufacturing plant opening or a manufacturing plant opening or the State of the Union. What the American people hear is 100 percent. President Trump's own words. All right, I have a couple things about that. Number one, if the president's state of the state address, just like the arena speeches he gives, we're in for a very rowdy evening tonight. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, well, look, I, I would say if any president were to write much of his own material, it would be Donald Trump. But these things are always crafted. Yeah. These things are always uh, uh, put together by a team. Now, it may very well be that that team uh, knows Donald Trump very well, channels Donald Trump, and so he gets up there and sounds like he would normally sound. Um, I don't think, though, past State of the Union addresses sound like his rallies, sound like he's riffing or, <laughs> yeah. or going on his own. And I wouldn't expect anything different this time around. Andre. Yeah, I mean, okay, so if it's a stream of conscious uh, speech, then he wrote it yeah, himself. Right. Um, or he didn't write it, he's just riffing. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that I think I am curious about, given what's going on with impeachment, is how presidential he sounds. President Trump has actually sounded pretty presidential in the state of the yeah, union that's addresses. Exactly right. um, and so I think it's a question of whether or not he's going to deviate from that pattern this time around, whether or not he's going to mention impeachment, whether or not he's going to, you know, take this as an opportunity to settle scores. So, you know, that's what I'm paying attention it's to. Gonna be, it's going to be fascinating to watch. We reports yesterday suggested that Nancy Pelosi, the speaker, who will be sitting right behind him, who will welcome him into her house tonight, and the president haven't spoken to each other for a couple months now. Uh, the dynamic of that's going to be interesting. Um, but the president's people have been got to be sitting on him saying, don't be tempted. Don't take the opportunity to go off script. This is an important moment for him to talk about the best things that he's accomplished, the economy, and win some points. 
he needs to show that he can be president for the entirety of the United States and not just the groups that have voted for him. And the State of the Union is a place to be able to do that, to sort of rise above, theoretically, the partisan divides and speak more broadly to the country. And I think likely they're going to write a speech which tries to do that. I think the real question will be whether or not he can stop himself from doing sort of a tangential riff if there's a piece that causes him to think about something else, particularly impeachment. Um, I have a feeling that his handlers are not thrilled about the tech, the tweets that he sent out so far this yeah. morning yeah. that are really knocking because, again, it is um, sort of focused on Democrats are awful, Democrats are evil. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, that's a problem because he is the president yeah. of the United States of America. Carl, they're going to have a little electric electrode behind the president's ear that will be in the hands of uh, <laughs> whoever is his top advisor. And every time he looks like he's going off script, they're going to send a little shock to his head. Uh, I- I, I, I think Andres looking like really is that, is that did you really read that in Politico? <laughs> oh no, well, no, that's not the look. For those of you not on Facebook, the look is you just made that up. Yes, I did. <laughs> just make that up. The, the, I think the the one way in which Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are very similar is that they both have very expressive faces, uh, and so you know the internet is filled with all these weird pictures of of them making all sorts of faces. And I think Donald Trump, I, I think that's going to be the story, the story tonight. That Not necessarily the best story to have, but, um, uh, you know, is he go? what kind of a poker face does he have? Is he going to uh, um, uh, allude to impeachment, not through talking about it directly, but with a nod or with a smirk or with a smile or with a hand gesture? And also, you mentioned Nancy Pelosi before. She's going to go through, I am sure, the, the tradition. She's going to introduce him, the high privilege and distinct honor, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, how is she going to do it? Yeah. Was it last year when they had the, the hand clap, yeah, exactly. right? The, the hand exactly. clap that was kind of a, an interesting tell. And so I think that's the thing. What are, the, what are going to be the tells tonight from the speaker, from the president? And from uh, the audience as well, the, the members of Congress. Andra, uh, we are told by the White House that this is going to be a positive message tonight. And, and that makes perfect sense. I mean, and that's what it should be. Yeah. So, I mean, I think just because we've seen the president's behavior in other places, I think we're all kind of waiting with bated breath to see whether or not it actually lives up to its billing. Okay, let me change the subject for just a couple minutes that we have left. Um, You know, we know that the impeachment uh, trial uh, resumes tomorrow. Today, last night and today, senators were given the opportunity that they've been asking for to be able to make uh, uh, brief speeches about why they've decided to do what they're doing. They asked for that and are going to get an extra day so that, in fact, the president appears in the House while he is still under impeachment. He won't have been acquitted, as we expect, tomorrow. But I thought it'd be interesting. Let's listen. Kelly Leffler, Senator Leffler, gave her first uh, remarks about impeachment on the floor uh, yesterday, last night. And uh, just listen to a minute of what she said. I came here to get things done for Georgians. But for the last two weeks, we've been stuck in the Senate chamber working on something that most Americans have little interest in. As my notebook filled up, I thought to myself, how did this case even make it to the Senate? When I've been around the state, it's very clear this is not what people at home care about. Georgians aren't losing sleep over a call the president made or questioning his constitutional right to conduct foreign policy. Despite this monumental distraction, this administration has worked tirelessly to move our country forward. This administration charges on, but it needs Congress's support if America is to move on with the American dream for all. With that in mind, I say enough. Let's put our trust in the American people. They are the ones who should make the judgment about the president, and they will do that in nine months. Let's not be so arrogant as to take that decision away from the American people. Instead, let's focus all of our energies on improving their lives. Impeachment does not do that. It's time to move on. I yield the floor. 
Uh, Amy, we know that other uh, Republicans in the Republican conference in the Senate have uh, decided to use their their minutes to, uh, in fact, say the president did something terribly mm-hmm. wrong. We don't think it's impeachable or perhaps it would divide the country too much to convict him. Uh, Leffler really isn't in a position to do that in terms of her own political ambitions. Is she? Number one, she's brand new mm-hmm. and it's hard for her to get up there and make a speech, I think, being overt, overtly critical about the president. But second, she's still trying to win his support. Uh, for her run. And so she avoided pretty pretty much in any way uh, uh, accusing him of do any wrongdoing whatsoever. Yes. Strategically, it was a good plan to emphasize the idea that there's an election coming. So let's sort of just back off from this, get back to doing other things, and the voters can decide. And if the voter, right, that, of course, also implies that if the voters decide he should be removed for this, then he will be during the election. And so that puts her out because, I mean, again, it's not only that she's facing a primary challenge um, in the upcoming race, which even though it's a jungle primary, right, she's, she's got, got a Republican. Doug she's got Doug Collins. About, yeah. Doug Collins was one of the president's staunchest supporters during the impeachment, uh, the, the impeachment hearings that happened in the House. And so she's really trying to counteract that as well. I mean, he, again, has given up no ground that there is anything that's been done wrong. And so she's got to sort of put it on that. But it's a difficult line to walk. And what's going to be interesting, I think, is to also see what the senators who have said he did do something wrong or they've particularly proved the facts of um, Article One decide then to do after that, especially as Manchin has just announced that he's going to try to bring up a censure resolution. I want to ask about that very quickly, Uh, Carl. You can comment on on Kelly Leffler and how she framed her remarks. But but, uh, Joe Manchin calling – saying he wants – a censure of the president, we have no idea whether Leader McConnell would allow that to happen. It seems unlikely. Uh, but it is an interesting alternative that throws a little wrinkle into all of this. Yeah, it, it puts the onus on all of these Republican senators who have come out and said, OK, he did something wrong. It doesn't rise to the level of impeachment, but he did something wrong. Now, with, with Leffler, I think she played very well to her audience, to Georgians. She, and she has a forum that Doug Collins doesn't have. She gets to appear senatorial, I guess you could say the word is. And that's something that Doug Collins hasn't had, and I think that'll play in her favor. All right. Uh, Andrew, you get the last word on all this. So I have been really surprised by um, senators playing to their delegate role as opposed to their trustee role during this entire uh, proceedings. It was like, well, if there is anything, and I agree, people are paying attention to bread and butter issues more so than anything else, but if there is any time for senators to be using their best judgment, it's on a separation of powers issue, which I don't expect regular citizens to be in the weeds about. Yeah, which is so fascinating to me. I've said it on the show before, Andra, that um, I was asked not long ago at the University of Georgia, somebody came up to me after I gave a talk and said, I'm doing my student teaching at a high school in Athens. what should I talk to them about? What should I focus? I said, separation of powers, civic, mm-hmm. a basic civics lesson. Yeah. We have no idea what that means in this country. Yeah, anymore. and I wish that Manchin revolu- uh, resolution were a Republican one, and it's calling everybody's bluff on yeah. sort of you well, know, what's going gonna on watch here. We're going to watch out. All right. Yeah. We are completely out of time. We will be back live at 2 o'clock today. Kevin Riley, the editor of the AJC, is going to be with me. And who knows what other surprise <laughs> panelists <laughs> we'll have by 2 this afternoon. Uh, so I look forward to seeing uh, those of you who join us again there. Uh, thank you all so much for your participation in Political Rewind today. I'm Bill Nigat. See you later today.